You're listening to the Trace Church Rock Rimmon podcast. How many of you guys wish that Stu would just like read you a book at night before you go to sleep? Yes, me too. <laughs> Stu, we love you. We love you for so many reasons. Hey, my name's Aaron. I'm the lead pastor here. So incredibly grateful to have each and every one of you join us today. You are in for a treat. Uh, I don't know what brought you in this direction. Some of you guys are with Brandon and Zeal Church. Zeal Church, let me hear from you. All right. Awesome. Uh, Some of you guys are here for the first time, and so whatever brought you in our direction, I don't know if it was an invitation, a a sign, or something on the internet, we're incredibly grateful, incredibly grateful to have you with us today. Um, I'm just thinking about that song that we just sang, The Spirit of the Lord is Near, and He is. And I want want to let you know that. Uh, My hope is that you'll join us next week, and I want to read to you some of the emails that I'm already receiving from last service uh, per the conversation that Brandon and I I have had and how people feel like it's moving them towards uh, a place of healing, a place of being united around justice and, and different things. And so I'll kind of save that for later. But here's, what, here's where I want us to start. I want to make sure we start with the right posture. One of the things that you'll hear me say in many contexts is that education leads to empathy. And if I've learned anything about the conversation around racism, it is that a lot of people want to speak up, but they've never first sat down. In other words, they want to speak up, they want to share an opinion, but they've never sat down to actually listen in hopes to become more empathetic with at least someone's story, someone else's experience. And if there was one attribute that I think that we could highlight out of Jesus's life, it would be the attribute of humility. That's my hope for us today, that we will start with a posture of humility, that we would be, uh, we would have a desire in us as people of God. And again, I can't speak for everyone. So if you're here today and you're kind of searching and you just kind of popped in on our service uh, and you're searching and you're not a believer, you yet to put your faith and trust in who Jesus is, you are welcome here. You can belong here before you believe. You can bring your doubts. This is a place that you can stop pretending like we want this to be a place where you wrestle with things and wrestle with God if need be. Uh, but for those of us that are followers of Jesus, we are called citizens of heaven. That's what Paul calls us when he's writing to the church in Philippi. As citizens of heaven, as children of God, when we, when we kind of signed up for this and decided, you know what, Jesus is not just a great idea, he's my leader and he's my Lord. When we signed up for that, we were also signing up to be people of peace. We were signing up to a greater level of seeking justice and unity together with one another. And that comes on the other end of education. And education often begins with a conversation, which is exactly what we're going to do with my great friend, Brandon Cormier today. Can you give it up for Brandon? All right. Before I hand it off to him, uh, I want to read to you something that Jesus says in John chapter 17. This is the only chapter of the Bible that's completely uh, dedicated to prayer by Jesus. He says this, my prayer, again, he's talking to our heavenly father, his heavenly father. He says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who believe in me through their message that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity, don't miss this, that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Unity, unity unveils the Father's love. Unity unveils the Father's love. And let me read one more thing. And I want to read this exactly the way that I wrote it. 
Our unity highlights that our Heavenly Father sent Jesus on our behalf. And potentially one of the greatest threats to our unity is the subject of racism. I was actually warned by people not to have this conversation. I was warned by people where it's like, hey, you're you're never going to win in this conversation. You might say too much. You might say too little. You might not say things the way that people want you to say them. And so I I wouldn't go there. And so you may ask me, well, why take the risk? Listen to me. This is not a risk for me. This is a responsibility. It's a responsibility. And we, we need to sit down. Uh, go ahead. Don't start a slow clap and then not finish it. Guys, COVID-19 is not our only global pandemic. Racism has been taking the lives of people, infecting minds, instilling fear, and destroying communities for centuries It is as anti-Jesus as anything in this world. And what saddens me is that when it surfaces through some type of of an event, some people, a lot of people at times who look like me, their first response is, are we talking about this again? And if anything, if nothing else, maybe you would say, man, there's nothing in me that's, I'm not a racist, but even that apathy, if you ask me, lends itself to racism. And so I want to encourage us today to not have that posture, to not have that bent, but to lean back and to listen to what God wants to say through this man right here. And I want to let you know that I trust him. I love him. He's become a good friend. And uh, Brandon, I'll I'll kind of stop there because I'm a preacher and I can keep going if I want to. So um, let me ask you this first question. I've heard this echoed by a lot of other pastors uh, that are minority pastors. And they've kind of elevated this idea where it's like when you're not a minority and you hear the subject of racism, it kind of puts you on your defenses, right? It puts you on your defenses. So can you speak into that and uh, just help us to begin to build a different narrative? Sure. Before I do that, Aaron, I just want to take a moment just to honor you and your leadership in in the city and your leadership and your friendship and your dedication to have this conversation. Because I think for far too long, the church, we abdicate our role in leading. And any time that happens, the narrative and the conversation gets hijacked into something else, which is what we are experiencing. And so I'm so grateful for men of God like you, uh, specifically white pastors like you who are willing to engage in this level of dialogue. And you've just really been a great friend to me too. And I'm so grateful you and your wife both are gems and gifts to Colorado Springs. And so I honor you. Um, I, I think that one of the things that makes this such a challenge, I think for non-people of color, whenever you hear the word racism or you hear the word privilege or you hear the words white supremacy, it kind of, it, 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 it evokes something in you. It provokes something in you that leads oftentimes to shame or humiliation or embarrassment because of things that have historically taken place in our country. And I actually think it's a tactic of the enemy because anytime that humiliation and shame steps in, it paralyzes you and it makes you feel like, well, I can't do anything, so I'll just do nothing. And so you really have to, I think for non-people of color, it's more of an issue to where you have to push past that in a very intentional way, especially if you name the name of Christ, because we don't have the luxury of being absent and having our lives devoid of the conversation or the participation so that we can move forward. So I think that's one area. The other one is it's just uncomfortable. And I think 
it oftentimes comes with some type of accusation, whether that's a self-accusation or not. Like, well, I didn't own slaves or I didn't like I didn't throw tomatoes at black people growing up in school or just, you know, whatever. And it's like, no, no, no. It's a much larger issue. And so I think it's a little bit more difficult for non people of color to actually have this conversation. That's good. This is not a new problem. This is not a new problem. This is a problem that's been around for a long time. And uh, I've said this, I've been talking to uh, a lot of people about this conversation and I've been owning up to some of the own, uh, my own areas of my life growing up in Kentucky in a very racially divisive area, racially tense area at times. And one of the things I'm learning even about this particular city of Colorado Springs um, and again, I've lived in three different cities for a good amount of time now, living down in Phoenix area and now up here for five years. But uh, this is not only, it's a very white city. Uh, and because it's a, we- a very white city, a lot of people truly, uh, sometimes sometimes have no fault of their own, haven't just been afforded the opportunity to have more relationships with people of color. And so that keeps them from having the dialogue, the, the relationship, being able to hear of others' experiences, which leads to a lack of empathy, which again is exactly why I think we need to have this conversation, especially now and here. And so um, with that being said, like we can go all the way back in the text, man. We can go back and see clear example, examples in the Bible uh, where racism existed and how it was called out. I'd love for you to speak into that. Yeah, I think you can go back as early as the Torah, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, because whenever you look at the book of Numbers, it's an interesting thing that happens. You have Moses, the, the great leader that he is, you know, the most humble, meek, you know, what he wrote of himself, the most, the, the like the meekest man who ever lived. Okay. Um, and so he had his his sister and, and brother. So Miriam, Miriam and Aaron, but Moses makes a decision that pushes against the comfort of the level of comfort for for Aaron and Miriam. Moses marries a what scripture describes as a Cushite woman, uh, which is actually a woman who had much more melanin, darker skin. This actually speaks of the Ethiopian and the Nubian tribe in, in Africa. So basically he married a black girl. And and for and everything was cool, everything was fine until he married someone with a darker hue of skin. Now, let's look at God's response, because here's why we say the apathy, that's just not, it's not even Christ-like, number one, but it's not even God-like. Like in the Old Testament, immediately, the Bible says that Miriam and Aaron, they pushed back, they they said, you know, Moses, this isn't a good idea, and, and we could, most scholars would agree, it was because of the color of her skin. She was of a different race, right, and treated as less than. So immediately, what does the Lord do? And it's almost ironic and and comical he literally strikes Miriam with a disease making her skin as white as snow almost as if to say oh you don't like, you don't like color I'll show you and so literally she gets the skin disease immediately where her skin turns white and I think right there from the very beginning God is making a very clear position don't ever do that there's not, you know, so, so Old Testament, you have the, um, you know, you have the parable of the, the Good Samaritan 
many of us are familiar with this story, but let's, uh, let's, let's apply a good hermeneutic to it and look at this in the eyes in which Jesus was dealing. There was a Jewish lawyer. The Jewish lawyer asked Jesus, who is my, who's my neighbor? Because Jesus said, you got to love the Lord your God and you got to love your neighbor. And according to the Old Testament, um, in Numbers and Leviticus, their neighbor was most accurately defined as those of their same race. It was other Jews. But remember, Jesus always came to elevate things. He didn't make things more easy. He actually called us to, to live the Jesus way, which is much more difficult. And so he tells them, you know, um, a, a man is beat up, he's robbed, he's left on the side of the road, and then a Jewish, catch this, a Jewish Levite walks by, and then a Jewish priest walks by, and then a Samaritan, <gasps> what? Samaritan? The half-breed? The, the less than? The little racially mixed group of I'm sorry, what? And Jesus turns it on its head because he says those who are considered less than have more righteousness and more justice flowing through them than those who know the law and who know me the best. And he, it's the Samaritan who's the hero, almost as if to say again, I make no distinction in terms of race. No, 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 no. Everyone's equal in my eyes. Then you have Peter, the great Saint Peter, who is confronted by Paul in Galatians chapter 2. And again, Paul is writing in Galatians and he says, I strongly opposed Peter because... Peter, you've got to understand this in light of Acts chapter 15, which was totally racially motivated whenever they were deciding, what do we do with the Gentiles, those who are of a different race than us? Are we going to require for them to be circumcised, or are we not? So in light of that, they come to this decision. There's neither Jew nor Greek nor Gentile. We're all the same. But Peter started acting real funny. Peter started treating Gentiles one way whenever he was with them, and then a different way whenever he was not with them. And Paul says, listen, we're Rose, but listen, that that cannot exist in the kingdom of God. And he confronts him strongly. And Peter repents and he does what's right, but it was totally a racial issue. I think these are all scenarios where we see God's fierce and quick dealings with any spirit because it cannot be celebrated, nor can it be tolerated within the body of Christ. The world's gonna do what the world's gonna do, but in the body of Christ, what? That cannot coexist with what God is wanting us to do to, for us to get to that place of unity. Yeah. Uh, it's so good. Um, I apologize for the lack of passion that Brandon brings when he speaks. <laughs> and we'll work on that. But, We've been uh, in quarantine, bro. I uh, yeah, in three no, months. Yeah. So this is three months of preaching, I'll store it up here. So uh, That's good. Um, one of the, I've been on a journey in this conversation personally. And again, going back, you know, I, I've been, I finally had a place in my life where I will admit uh, that I have been both directly and indirectly a part of racism. And, uh, you know, recently, and, that, and that's, you know, in the, that's in the far distant, it's, you know, my rearview mirror quite a, quite a ways, but I've never taken the time to go back and lament and repent. Um, and uh, for those of you that don't know this, we're a part of a church planning organization called Orchard. And within Orchard, there are several African-American pastors that I've gotten to become really good friends with. And I've been able to ask them questions. And I've been listening a lot more for the past three to four years, just listening a lot more things that I'm like, when, they, when they've mentioned something to me, I'm like, really? Like that still happens? Like really? And so um, I'm just learning, man. I'm trying to take the posture of you know, a learner and I want to listen and I want to grow my empathy and I don't want to act like, um, I know what I'm talking about, uh, when I have not 
not lived uh, in your shoes or haven't, you know, been a minority. And uh, so through all of that, one of the things, you know, in arriving and even having conversations with a lot of my white friends, I think what happens is many of us uh, will evaluate, do a spirit check of our own lives and determine I'm not a racist. And because I'm not a racist, I'm good. I'm done. I'm, I'm not a ra- like, I, like, I love you. You're my brother in Christ. And it's like, and, and I'm good. So it's like, I've evaluated, I've, I've checked myself. I've, I've asked God to check me. I'm not a racist. And we allow the conversation to end there. Maybe we have an apology, but, um, what I'm learning is that it has to go so much further than not only acknowledge, you know, so much further than an apology, so much further than just acknowledging, Hey, I'm personally not a racist. And so what I'd love to hear from you is, um, what is it like to be a minority uh, in our country? What is it like to be a minority uh, in America? America? I said it, America. Um, and so, because education leads to empathy. Yeah. We can't possibly know what we don't know, but we need to listen. And so right now we want to listen. Yeah, I think that there is this, I, I was in a recent conversation with a group of people, a part of a community here in Colorado Springs. And I think one person probably said it the best. They, we were having this kind of roundtable discussion and this one African-American lady just spoke up and she said, you know, there is a there is a perpetual challenge for me and she was speaking of being an African-American woman, even here in Colorado Springs in some of her social circles, I just, it's hard for me to find my place. And I think whenever she said that, something kind of like, just like hit me a certain way. And I'm like, that's how I would phrase it. Because, and here's the, here's the thing that I think is very different or somewhat foreign to non-people of color, unless you have been, you're the exception if you've been immersed in Hispanic culture or black culture, or you were the only one. And I know that that happens from time to time, but by and large, your race is the dominant race. So, so, so therefore, most things accommodate to your preferences, whether that's your hair or your culture or your music or whatever. And so it's very different whenever you're raised as a minority because from like childhood, you are very intentionally taught to adapt, adapt to the degree of where you don't make them feel uncomfortable. And so I'll be really specific. For me, I've grown up in Caucasian schools my whole life. I went to private Christian school. I went to, to, to schools that offered better academic resources, even down south in Louisiana where I'm from. And so there are conversations from a child like, don't talk too loud because they're going to interpret you as being aggressive. You're already an aggressive, angry black man because it makes them uncomfortable. So make sure you smile a lot, even whenever you get passionate because they're going to think you're angry because it's a part of our culture. It's just, it's a cultural nuance and a difference, but you grow up your whole life learning that you must adapt. I'll bring that into the church world. There's also, and so it's rooted in this idea of white supremacy. It, it just means that when everything is catered towards you, the way you do things, the way you live life, it somehow becomes the rubric and the standard. And so while we would like to champion and say, gosh, we're racially unified, we're really not. We're just desegregated. And that's not the depth or the measure to which God is calling us to be in the church.
So to be unified, it has to come to this place of, man, that's a little uncomfortable, but I'm going to celebrate that culture. And so I think in a, as a minority, even in America, whenever you enter into white spaces, whether that's boardrooms or leadership opportunities, and I've been at them all, I've spoken at large platforms, thousands, all those different things, there's still this element of, can I fully be me? And you still see, and you, can you still receive if I'm just like fully me and all the cultural nuances of being an African-American, but I love the same Jesus. So, so what's the problem? Because I've adapted to you my whole life. I adapt to you every single day. And so I think that that's part of the nuance. That's some of, some of the tension. And listen, these are the conversations that perhaps you're not privy to that by and large, most of us have had our entire lives especially if you're going to serve and be a part and, and not just kind of retreat. I, I've never lived a life to where I just want to be around everybody who looks like me, thinks like me, walks like me, sings like me, does all. So especially whenever you're committing, and I think that's what it takes, committing to, to that tension. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, don't, don't do this right now, but one of my uh, friends that's, that's black encouraged me. He said, hey, do something really quick. He said, Google professional, uh, women's professional haircuts or professional women's haircuts. And he goes, what do you see? And so I did it, and I looked, and it was all white women. He said, now do unprofessional women's haircuts. And I did that, and it was all black women. And I'm like, why? Like, where, like how did... And so it's one of those things where it's uh, like it's a part of the systemic thing that I know we've been talking about. Some people are resistant towards. But until you just kind of stop and listen um, and, and, and do some research yourself, it's like I think there's so much that just on, with a little bit of a little bit more conversation, yeah. a little bit more research, you will end up on the other end of experiencing something, listening to something or seeing something where you're like, really, like really. So uh, we, we already touched on it a little bit. I want, I want you to do us a favor, and I believe this will be a blessing to many people. I know when we talk about like, the subject of privilege, when that comes up, that typically gets a pretty strong response from people. And again, I, I, I try to pride myself in being as transparent as possible. Five years ago, that would have been my response. You talked about privilege or anything just because I'm white, and I would have been like, uh, don't, don't tell me that I'm privileged. You have no idea the kind of life that I've been through. And I could name off five things that were very difficult seasons of my life that I went through. And so I wanted to jump to my story. And I think a lot of people have a tendency to do that. Let me jump to my story. I don't, don't, uh, don't make me feel like I've had some foot up on you because, you know, of my, the color of my skin. But when you and I were sitting down and talking and you described privilege to me in a way that I'd never heard it. And again, for what it's worth, the way that I would describe privilege uh, has changed a lot in the last three years after talking to many of my black friends and just listening to what they've had to have, the kind of conversations that they have that with their kids, that like when they're telling me this, it's like, yeah, these are conversations I have with my kids. I'm like, really? Like, you still have to say that? You still have to warn them about that? You still have to caution them with this? And then I just thought, that's my privilege. My privilege is that I've never had to even think or fathom that with my kids. And so, uh, again, I love the way that you describe it. I think it'll be disarming for many people in this room. So talk about that for just a second. Yeah, I think, you know, what, it can be so triggering, right? Because I think the misnomer or the misinterpretation is, gosh, like white privilege just means my life was awesome, you know? And, and I had to struggle and, I, you know, my family had to work and I had to overcome challenges. And I think it's a misnomer because 
here's the deal. I have had privileges in my own life, not white privilege, but I had, that's a whole, and I'll, I'll get to that, but I had certain privileges. My, my mom and dad, they, they, I grew up in a home having both my mom and my dad. I had a brother. I have one brother who's 10 years older than I am. And it's almost like we grew up in two different homes. Like we had two different life experiences because my parents were further down the road in their journey, both financially and working and serving God and all of those things. My dad led me to the Lord at five years old in our living room. My dad's always been a deacon in the Baptist church, like since, like since as far back as I can remember. So there were certain privileges that I was afforded. My mom and dad worked really hard to give me the best education possible. So I went to a, a private, all white, private Christian school in Southwest Louisiana, and it cost money, money, like a whole lot of money to go. And so I remember them whenever they make the payment, whenever they write the check, they're like, no, we want to give you, we want to give you a foot up, Brandon. We want to make sure that you have the very best. Those were privileges that were afforded me that were not afforded to some other kids in my neighborhood, to some cousins, to some family members that were around me. The idea is this, white privilege is not a problem. White privilege can be defined as, here it is, it doesn't mean that you didn't have to work hard for things in your life. It doesn't mean that you were lazy or that you were born into royalty. It just means out of all the obstacles that you've had to overcome and the challenges that each of you have had to face in your own right, in your life, by and large, the color of your skin was not one of them, which is quite different for people of color because you throw those challenges on and then the very color of your skin setting you back are presented as an obstacle that you have to overcome in certain contexts. And this is where you just have to say, hey, you just got to trust us on this. You just got to trust black people on this one. I know this is difficult for you, but you just trust us. We love Jesus. We want unity. I would, but just trust us. Listen, it's a challenge. And so furthermore, it's not even a problem to have privilege. Again, I have had privileges in my own life. One privilege leads to other privileges. So going to certain schools and, and achieving academic success, ex all of those different things that put me in position in college to where I was able to use some of the privileges that I had. I was, I was 20 years old. I was a sophomore in college. There's this young African-American male who came from a single, single parent home. He's from New Orleans. They had migrated up to North Louisiana after Hurricane Katrina. If y'all remember Hurricanes Katrina and Rita and hit our state, devastated everything. And I just remember thinking, okay, I have this privilege. I'm going to extend some of that to this young man. And so I literally became his legal guardian. I brought him to school, basketball practice, did homework assignments, all of those things. It was extra. But what was it? It was a privilege that I had that he did not have. He didn't have the blessing and the privilege of coming from two, a two-parent home and all these different things. But, but here's the deal. Let's get theological. Philippians chapter 2 says, though, God came in the for he, though Jesus came in the form of God, he did not cling to his right as being one and equal with God. He didn't cling to it in such a way that it withheld him from serving those around him. So here's the theological hook, and here's the challenge. This is the Jesus way. Whatever privileges I have been afforded, it is nothing for me to divest myself of that privilege if I can love my brother better, if I can help my brother, if I can help my sister out. And so here's the charge. It's not, it's not some new revelation. And as a matter of fact, Paul writes in Philippians, and he says, this is our way. 
This is God's expectation of us. So if I am made aware of some privilege that who even knew that I had that, I want to use that privilege. I want to steward it well. Privilege isn't the problem. It's whether or not we are stewarding the privileges that God has given us. Does that make sense? I just want to let you keep going, man. I don't even want to say anything. Um, I think the story that you shared, I believe it was from down in Tucson when you had a group of, uh, of white guys with you uh, that were working for you at the time, um, probably will help us to see things differently. And, and can, I need to say something before this. Um, man, there's part of me that doesn't want to acknowledge this. Uh, this would, I, again, to be fair to myself, about 10 years ago, you know, I would hear stories coming from friends or acquaintances that I had that were black. And I'm like, really? I mean, I, and I hate to admit that, like, really? That still happens, like, really? Um, but again, in the, this last season, especially being afforded with many more deep-seated friendships uh, with friends that are black, um, I either have to look at them and say, you're a liar. <laughs> Or I'm going to believe that what you're telling me actually happened. And so, um, yeah, I'd love for you just to share that kind of that experience with us and, and yeah, talk about that. Yeah. And I think this goes back to the black experience here in America. You know, you are raised and, you know, by my mom and dad were very much so alive and well during the civil rights movement. I mean, Jim, the, the, the whole nine yards. And so there's this there is a there's a way in which they communicate have communicated with 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 us like hey no matter what you do no matter where you go always know that you could bust through any ceiling you know the the sky's the limit but i need to give you a dose of reality you're still an african-american man in america and and I would just kind of blow it like, yeah, whatever, you know, I have white friends, you know, <laughs> like we're, we live in a white neighborhood, you know, and and, and it's funny because we Octavia, my wife and I, we were just eating lunch yesterday with a Caucasian family. They adopted three African-American boys and and this Caucasian mom was just saying, I. I weep because of the conversations I have to have with my 13 and my 17-year-old and my 11-year-old African-American beautiful boy. There are just certain things that you cannot do. I don't care what little Alec does. You you don't you can't do those things. And so in Tucson, this is just 2017. I'm driving my vehicle down the down the road. It was a it was a new city because we had mo- recently moved there, and I made a turn. I think I crossed over a lane, didn't use a signal, something like that. And so I get pulled over. I'm in a Volvo. A newer Volvo at the time, Volvo XC90. It's not a luxury vehicle, all of that. And so we pulled over, and uh, the police officer comes up to the window, and uh, I, I think quickly asks for my license registration. I'm slowly giving it to him. I mean, the it's it. it oh, here's the thing of privilege. I was just explaining this to a dear white brother of mine the other day. He just said, you know, Brandon. The worst thing I think of whenever I'm pulled over by law enforcement is that how much money this is going to cost me. And I said, well, that is privilege, bro. <laughs> like, I just, I don't know what that's like, right? And and I'll come back and balance that out because in just a second, I'll get to that. But so we're pulled over. I have my my four white staff members who work for me uh, in, in the car with us. And so he came, the law, law enforcement came and asked me to get out of the vehicle. And I'm like, why am, why am I getting out of the vehicle. Okay. So get out slowly walking. I mean, your heart's beating fast. This is, this is real So go to the back of the car. And the first thing he asked me is, is this your vehicle? And I say, 
yes, it's my vehicle. You know, I own it. And then um, it looks up my, I have a Colorado ID because I haven't, my Arizona ID yet. And so he just asked me, what, what part of town do you live? And so I described to him the part of town that I'm in. And his eyebrows kind of perk up like, and like, what neighborhood do you live in? And so I tell him the name of the neighborhood. This is a nicer neighborhood because all the homes were brand new, just been built that year. And so he said, well, do you, do you rent that home or, like, or, or do you own it? And at that point, you know, Aaron, here's the thing. You always want to choose to believe the best. You don't want, like, I'm just, that's just how I am. Like, love believes all things. And I'm like, I own the home. And at this point, because in my mind, I know what's taking place. And I can't tell you, I can't explain to you. I can't give you statistics or data as to some intellectual, uh, to intellectually equate to you what that feels like. Because it's in the realm of my feelings, right? And so I'm, at this point, I'm holding back tears because I know what's going on. And so I said, I... I I own the home, sir. And so he said, you were able to get a loan? And I just looked at him and said, yeah, good credit score. <laughs> yeah. And so I'm standing there in the back of the car for about 15 or so minutes. He's taking his precious time. And as I'm sitting there, all of these thoughts are going through my head. See, here's the deal. Never assume what you would or wouldn't do whenever you're in the... Before you judge someone else's reaction... Make absolutely sure that you pause for a moment and don't give yourself a free pass as to whether or not you would be super Christ-like or respond like Jesus or turn the other cheek or whatever the rhetoric is because in that moment, but for the grace of God, there are a few things that I wanted to say and do, but I'm like, I have a child, I have two children, I have a wife. This could end very, very badly. So I'm just standing there, even verbally. And so I get back in the car, about 15, 20 minutes pass by, and I, on my all-white staff is sitting in the car, tears running down their face, tears running down my face. They're about to ask questions. I'm like, I can't talk to y'all right now. I can't even with y'all right now. And so it's just dead silence for the rest of the drive home. And we get to my house, and I said, I'm still not ready to talk about this. We'll talk tomorrow and we'll debrief the situation. And it led to some pretty powerful conversations on this is the reality of an Af being an African-American in America. And here's the thing, Aaron, we have to acknowledge this doesn't mean that all it is not being anti-racist and being for police officers, they are not two mutually exclusive realities. Amen. My grandfather was the first African-American police chief in the small town of Jennings, Louisiana, and there are newspaper articles and clippings. He raised 12, count them, 12 children, including my mom, to respect and honor law enforcement, to bless them. They knew what it was like to have a dad and a grandfather who is serving and committed to the community. So it is, it is okay to be anti-racist and still bless law enforcement yes. and pray for them yes. and honor them while at the same time call out the hypocrisy or the brokenness in the system. And I think that that is sometimes a unnecessary conundrum that we place ourselves in as the body of Christ. And it's not necessary. Yeah, that's good, brother. 
That is so good. Yeah, I hate, I absolutely hate the narratives that are being built where it's like, if I speak up against this, now you've associated me with this? Yeah. Yeah. Where did like, and, it, and it's hard to even talk about one thing and move the conversation forward because of how many things you get connected to. It's, you know, I said this last service, uh, this is not a police problem. Uh, this is a people problem. Uh, there are pastors that are racist. There are pastors that should not be uh, representing the gospel based on their heart against people who don't look like them. And so you can find that everywhere. And so, uh, yeah, I believe that's, that's something that we have to uh, fight for right now. It's like we're fighting for this conversation. Don't pull me away to something else that I'm not associating myself with right now because all you're doing is diluting the conversation that needs to happen. And, and is there reform that needs to happen? Yeah, in the church, within police precincts, within schools, within, yes, we need to do our work everywhere. We need to do our work everywhere. And so I appreciate you sharing that, that story. Um, I think to a great extent, uh, People uh, that are white uh, oftentimes feel paralyzed in this conversation. And I'd be lying if I didn't say that I've felt this before too, where it's like, man, if I speak up, am I going to say the wrong thing? And then am I going to be associated with the wrong thing? And then if it's like, and so I think to a great extent, there are a lot of people who feel paralyzed in this conversation. They want, especially followers of Jesus, we want to do something. We want to be agents of change where there needs to be change. Uh, we want to speak up for justice without, you know, feeling like we're, you know, anti-police or this. So what happens is like, I think it's the safe bet to just not do anything. I think it's the safe bet. Um, can you help us uh, find some steps forward? Specifically, I mean, you can preach to a, a white man, you know, in a white church that's in a white city that's, you know, a minister of the gospel. Um, what is it that I can do? Because what I don't want to do and what I don't want any of you to do, even if you feel like you want to speak up about this, I don't want to just wait for the next event to happen. And then I, and then some cute hashtag, you know, where it's like, I said something. Yay. Look at me. You know, thanks. I said something. Um, I want to be an agent of change. Uh, this isn't going to go away without, I believe, I really do believe education is one of the biggest ones, right? Educating, sitting down and listening to somebody in their life experience that doesn't look like you huge. Um, but what are some steps that all of us could take that you think that would keep us from just, Number one, not feeling paralyzed, but number two, not just saying something because it's the right thing to do right now. And six months later, we're not saying a thing. Yeah. You know, Aaron, it's like you said, education leads to empathy. And then I believe empathy leads to action. And I think that in today's day and age, you know, the argument sometimes it, I think previously it's just like, well, I just didn't know, you know, and I think it's like, okay, like we're at a place now where the whole world knows, you know, and so there are enough resources, there are enough, one of them you can Google, uh, be a bridge, one of, one of the amazing leaders that I believe that God is elevating her voice in this season, among so many others, is a, a lady by the name of Latasha Morrison, she's created an entire course, and this isn't something that's reactive, she's been doing this for years and years, and it's called Be a Bridge, and, and, it's, and, and it's specifically geared towards, um, um, our white brothers and sisters in the body of Christ who are saying, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to pull all the courage that I have. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to put myself in uncomfortable situations and I'm going to be a bridge. But here's the thing about being a bridge. You got to be okay with being walked on. 
And so to think that, all right, I'm going to lift up my voice and like every black person is going to champion me. That's not reality. In the same way, not every white person has championed me for lifting up my voice. I'm right there with you. Okay. But, but, but it's a risk worth taking. Because to Aaron's point, it's our responsibility as the body of Christ. So I think making a bold and decisive decision, you know what? I'm not just going to not be racist. I'm going to be anti-racist. And that means some conversations around my dinner table. That means taking my children, those of you who are parents, and actually one of the major, I think, philosophies that sets us back the most is kind of like this still colorblind philosophy. Like, well, I just don't see color. Well, what a privilege, you know, (laughs) because again, that's steeped in white supremacy and it is steeped in privilege because you don't have to. (laughs) Your life is fine. We see color all the time. And I promise you people say, And so it's committing to, uh -uh, I'm not going to be a part of that camp. I'm going to go a step further. I'm going to do life with as much as possible people of color, and I'm going to train my children to do the same. I'm going to teach them about heroes in the black community, black voices, black speakers, preachers, doctors, whatever, and, and brown and people of color, because that begins to give them a mindset that, hey, you know, it's not so much about, gosh, their lives matter, but their lives are equal. We are equals. And I think that that's the thing, that's the position and the posture that has to be, has to be achieved. I am your equal. They are just like you. Their lives are a little bit different, but they are equal in, in, in importance and equal in intelligence and all of these things. So it starts with things. So you can Google be a bridge. Even the website has tons of free, um, free curriculum and even how to start conversations because I get it. Like, please hear my heart. I get it. I have been in white spaces for over 20 years. I have some of my closest friends and it's like, oh, this is awkward. And I'm like, well, just we just got to be awkward because there's too much hell that's happening on earth for us to just ignore this issue, right? And so I think it's, it's pushing through that and saying, okay, I'm going to seek out, I'm going to educate myself and allow that to enter, allow that to lead me to a place of empathy, but then some action steps as well. Finding out in your own community, in your own neighborhood, in your own kids' schools, hey, what can I do to help move this conversation forward? And you know, honestly, Aaron, there's something supernatural about koinonia, the Greek word for fellowship in the body of Christ. There's something supernatural that happens whenever we break bread together, whenever we do life together. It's a rebuke to the spirit of racism. It's a rebuke to the spirit of the world and the spirit of age that says, you know what, we're going to have honest, and you don't expect for them to answer or respond or accommodate your whiteness. You give them the freedom. You be yourself. I can't tell you honestly how freeing that is. And that's not like we're victims or anything. It just does something collectively. It's like, all right, like I can be myself. Like, really? Like, yeah. really? <laughs> okay. And I think that's where, the, where it starts. So those are a few just kind of handles and practical steps to at least start the conversation moving forward. Yeah. That's so good. So good. Can we give it up for Brandon for sharing with us today? I'm going to say the same thing that I said to you last service in, you know, Peter's letter in first Peter says, cast your anxiety on me um, because I care for you. That's what it says. It says, cast your anxiety on me, but because I care for you. But if you break that down in the Greek, it says, give your anxieties over to me because it matters to me about you. 
And Brandon, it matters to me about you. And so I really do appreciate you being here today and sharing your experiences and sharing uh, your passion and sharing your voice that's not leveraged for any other agenda except for the kingdom of God. And so I thank you and appreciate you. Uh, One more time, give it up for this guy. Thank you again for being here. So we're going to transition into a time of response right now. And man, if there was ever a time to respond to something that we heard Um, here at Trace, if you're new, uh, what we do every single week is we want to remember one of the things. No, I said that wrong. We want to remember the thing that brings us back and unifies us. And that is the cross. And so uh, the way we do that here at Trace is by taking a cracker that represents the broken body of Jesus that was given up for you on a cross, on a Roman crucifixion. And then we take some juice that represents his blood that was spilled out for the forgiveness of our sins. It's what fills the gap between our separation between us and our heavenly father that when you will put, if you will put your trust and faith in who Jesus is and what he has done for you and what he's accomplished for you on the cross, that um, you don't have to do anything like you don't have to earn his favor. You don't have to earn that grace. It's a free gift given to you because of what Jesus did, but it did not come cheap. And so uh, we celebrate that. And if you've never made that decision, uh, there's a little connection card in the seat back pocket in front of you. If you want to write down your name, like I'd love to talk more about that. Um, That's why we do this. Uh, That's if there was a win for us at Trace Church, it's getting people to say yes to Jesus. Is that sign still over there? Yes, over there. Um, and so if you want to, if you want to say yes to Jesus today, let us know. We'd love to talk to you more about that. So here's what it's, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to, I'm going to pray. And then we've got tables around the room that have those elements on them. And again, with the whole social distancing thing, you can wait until the lines die down. You can wait until there's not as many people. You can wait until after the service. If you want, you can grab one of those cups and take it home. If you want to participate in communion that way, uh, just remember what you're celebrating and what you're remembering. And so also, if you want to continue to invest in the kingdom of God through Trace Church, there's several ways you can give here. Uh, If you're a guest with us today, no obligation to give. It's a blessing that you're here with us. Uh, But we have buckets at those tables. You can also give through our app online uh, and set it up that way. And uh, for those of you that do continue to invest in the kingdom of God through Trace Church, uh, thank you so much. We couldn't do what we do without you. And so uh, I'm going to pray, and then I want you to pray. Uh, And even if you didn't like something that you heard today, that's okay. Um, But let God, like, let God search you. As we hear the psalmist say, God, search me, O God, and know my, know if there's anything about me that's, that's not lined up with where you're taking me. Um, And so just allow God to, to search you and allow this to be a thin space. And I would, I would, I think we would be hard to find anyone in this room Uh, that doesn't have one action step that they could take if you're a follower of Jesus to contribute to not just being not a racist, but to be anti-racism. And so let me pray. And then I'm going to encourage you to respond. Abby's going to lead us in uh, just some instrumental music, and then she'll dismiss us after that. Father, thank you. Uh, God, thank you for Jesus. Uh, Thank you for the grace that is given to us, this free gift that did not come cheap. Father, that we would be reminded each and every week uh, as we celebrate in your supper, God, that we would be reminded uh, that any, any blemish that we have taken on from sin, God, that it It was removed because of what Jesus did, nothing in what we can do. And so God, thank you for that level of forgiveness that we don't have to sit around worrying. Have we done enough? Have I done enough? Am I okay with God? Am am I in good standing, God? But it's because of what Jesus did that accomplished all of that. And so Father, right now we celebrate it. Uh, Father, And we invite your Holy Spirit to, to search us, truly search us and see if there's anything in us 
uh, that we need to change, that we need to maybe just confront uh, that could potentially be leading us away from where you want us to be when it comes to subject racism. God, we love you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Feel free to respond.